Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Korean War was an exceptionally bloody conflict, with as many as 150,000 troops from South Korea, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and all participating United Nations forces killed during the war. Yet this is only a fraction of the suffering faced during this period. When it comes to civilian casualties, the statistics are shockingly incomprehensible. Nearly 3 million civilians, or about 10% of Korea's pre-war population, were killed. To put this into some perspective, this level of civilian casualties was higher than that seen during the entirety of the Second World War or during the Vietnam War. Yet despite this level of pain and suffering, we hear so little about the Korean perspective of the war or accounts of what happened during this period in history. Well, to help us rectify this, we have veteran foreign correspondent and expert on North and South Korea, Gene H. Lee, on the podcast. Gene's family were caught in the turmoil that unfolded during the Korean War, and it's her family experience, along with Gene's extensive expertise on the region, that help us to see the civilian perspective of the conflict. I should also add that if you want to hear more from Jean, then check out the BBC World Service podcast, The Lazarus Heist, which she co-presents and is returning with a second season later this year. But now here is Jean H. Lee on civilian perspectives of the Korean War. Hi, Jean. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Thank you for taking the time to come on. Where in the world are you at the moment? So I am sitting in muggy, hot and humid Washington, D.C. Ah, in the swamp. Precisely. I am sitting in the middle of the swamp, soaking in the sauna that the summer presents here in D.C. And do you get any relief this summer? Are you jetting off anywhere else around the world? I will be heading to Italy and then to London and then to Seoul, which is where my family lives, to catch up with some of my relatives there. Well, I don't think you'll get much relief in London at the moment because it is well and truly in a heat wave. But hopefully in Italy and Seoul, you'll have a fantastic time. And of course, it is Korea and the Korean War that we're talking about today. And actually, we often think about the Korean War with this broader perspective of the Cold War players, that division into a bipolar world 
between the West and its capitalist way of thinking and the, the Sino-Soviet bloc with its focus on communism. But one thing we don't talk about when we talk about the Korean War is the actual Korean experience on either side of that 38th parallel. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it was divided along those lines after the Second World War, almost immediately after, by an agreement between the Americans and the Soviets in September 45. Is that correct? The Korean Peninsula, well, we call it Korea, and this is the country that my parents were born into. It was just called Korea at the time. It was a colony of Japan for many, many years, for 35 years. And it was when the Japanese surrendered during World War II that Korea was liberated. And there's an amazing passage in my uncle. My uncle wrote a memoir, and there's an amazing passage of how they heard this announcement when he was a kid. It's really amazing to think as well when you talk about, and thank you also for wanting to hear about the Korean experience. At the time, my family had a Japanese surname, just like Koreans did. And this was the time, and they only learned, were only allowed to speak Japanese at school. And this was the moment where they could suddenly be Korean again. But what that meant was that Korea was up for grabs. They were suddenly liberated. The Japanese left. And it was in the middle of the Cold War. And at a time where there was this burgeoning rivalry between some of these superpowers in the region, this is something that the Koreans have been dealing with for millennia, was being this tiny little country very strategically located. And so I think that that recognition that this country, this tiny little country could serve as a stepping stone to the rest of Asia, for example, or that it was caught within these larger superpowers certainly meant that though it was a country that many people knew nothing about in the rest of the world, it had a certain strategic importance. And so divided in 1945 at the 38th parallel, and it's been divided ever since. But it, was that the initial thoughts of the Korean people at the time? Was it thought that this would always be a, a long-term, decades and decades-long division? Because there's that five years between 45 and then June 1950, so four and a half years-ish, where there isn't the Korean War. What is going on in Korea between the North and the South at this period of time? Are there attempts at reunification, or is it pretty clear from the start that uh, any uh, well disagreements are not going to be reconciled quickly? I think that's a good point, and I find this period so fascinating because it's things were not as black and white as they may seem when we look back at history. I think this is a very tumultuous and tenuous time for the Koreans, and I think there were a lot of Koreans, including some of my own relatives, who really didn't know what the right future was, which ally or which country was the right country to ally with. Did they want to support the Soviets who had occupied the North? or the Americans who were coming in from the South, I don't think it was absolutely clear to the Koreans at the time. After living under centuries of absolute monarchy and then 35 years of a really brutal colonial period by the Japanese, they were also trying to figure out how do we hold on to or reclaim what is Korean and which of these leaders which of these two men who stepped forward as the leader of Korea 
which of these two men would really lead them to a future that would mean that they could hold on to their independence. And I don't think that that was absolutely clear to the Koreans. You know, which side of the Korean Peninsula, they, the border that they ended up with, was also just largely a matter of chance. And I point this out, that 38th parallel division was almost arbitrarily drawn in 1945. And for many families who were living near the border, it was real chance whether you ended up in the South or the North. And I point this out all the time. I feel it very keenly when I'm in North Korea. Because to us, North Korea seems so far away. It's this mysterious country that's so cut off. But when I'm in North Korea, I cannot help but think this could have been me if my family weren't. You know, Seoul is very close to the DMZ. It takes us 40 minutes to drive there. My family, when the war broke out, was in the northeast of the country, I should say uh, northeast of Gangwon province, very close to the border as well. And when I drive from Seoul to that part of the country today, you drive through vast sections that were in North Korea, and by the end of the war had ended up in South Korea. And so I think that there's, I think it's really important to recognize that some of this is a matter of fate, and some of it was a fluke, and that the people of Korea at the time, it was so clear cut for them which side they wanted to side with. And I'm not sure that uh, it was clear for, for decades. We have to remember as well that North Korea was the stronger of the two Koreas until the 1970s. And there were droves of ethnic Koreans in Japan who chose to repatriate to North Korea, thinking that that was the Korea that was going to be the stronger Korea. So really, so much confusion during this period. A lot of incursions back and forth across that border uh, between 1945 and the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. And so for us, of course, the Korean War starts in 1950. But there were a lot of incursions back and forth across that border, even in the in the years before the formal outbreak of the Korean War. So give us a bit more detail about this then, because that moment where North Korean troops start to flood over the border and invade the country. I mean, we start to see the capital Seoul captured four times, and it's not like this is a particularly friendly occupation in terms of civilians killed. We're going into the millions. But is that how it began? Were the North Korean soldiers initially seen as an enemy, or did some welcome them? Or was there a very harsh resistance from the start? For each family, each Korean family, it really depended where their political loyalties lay. And so I think for the most part, what people were fleeing or escaping was war. They knew that they didn't want to be fighting, whether it was for the South Koreans or for the North Koreans, to be honest. What they were fighting was conflict. But I think for the most part, the, the sense was that they would rather ally themselves with the United States. I mean, you know, it's hard to... I spoke to my father about what it was like in those early months of the Korean War two years ago. And I am embarrassed to say that I had never really asked him what it was like the day that the war broke out. He was nine years old, almost 10. So he has a very, very vivid memory of it. I was born and raised in the United States, and it really wasn't part, you know, we call it the Forgotten War for a reason. It really wasn't part of my upbringing. And honestly, 
anytime my father mentioned it, for example, trudging through snow, we would just roll our eyes. So it was, I'm embarrassed to admit that I, I didn't really ask him what it was actually like that day and in the months and the years that followed until two years ago. And I really did it to mark the outbreak of that conflict. But to hear him talk about none of what he discussed was about the politics of it. Of course, he was, like I said, he was a nine-year-old boy, but it was more about the brutality of conflict, the chaos, the hunger, the near starvation, the crisscrossing of Korea. They had to flee on foot with nothing but what they had on their backs multiple times during this period. For him, I think the political element became much more what side they were on because they interacted with American soldiers. They harbored two American soldiers in one of their homes, two American soldiers who were also fleeing and played with the guns and rifles that were left behind when American soldiers fled. So I think that it was very clear in his mind as a boy that they were on the side of the U.S.-led U.N. forces. And obviously the way that history has panned out, this early impression that my father had obviously became the defining feature of the trajectory of our lives because we became Americans. My parents are dual citizens, they're South Korean American, but I am an American citizen and was born and raised in the United States. And that is precisely because of what happened to my family during the Korean War. But I have to say that my father did mention that during those early years that you talk about, the mid-40s to the outbreak of the Korean War in, the in 1950, so he comes from a class of intellectuals. And he did mention that there were many intellectuals back then who were leftists, who were intrigued by communism, were interested in these ideas of liberty that they thought that communism represented. And that I had two uncles who went to Pyongyang, who went north because they were sympathizers of North Korea. And I did have an uncle who was seized by North Korean troops as well. Of course, we don't have any idea what happened to this part of my family. But I think that that, I think it's an interesting way to explain how complicated and murky things were for the Koreans in trying to figure out what will be the best future for South Korea. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood, in the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before, and there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the floodwaters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters and how the racism, exploitation and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. 
Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What was it like for those civilians caught in the middle of all of this fighting? You mentioned, of course, about the famine and that rapid retreat, not only of troops but civilians as well, that continues further and further south. Through some of the harshest winters, we spoke with a British veteran of the Korean War, and he was saying that off the coast they were hitting you know, maybe up to minus 30. It was unbelievable levels of freezing weather. Korea can get incredibly cold. And what I'll say is that the Koreans were doing the They were in this period where they're trying to build new lives after Japanese colonial period. So they were really trying to recover from a period where they had very little say in what their lives were like. So, And because these incursions had been happening for years, perhaps they didn't take seriously the threat of an outright invasion by the North Koreans. But it happened very suddenly. So it was very early on June 25th of 1950. And everyone I speak to who was alive during that period, they remember very clearly where they were when they realized that an attack or an invasion was imminent. But again, you know, they were going about, all of these Koreans were going about their daily lives. They weren't necessarily ready for war. There had been skirmishes for months, and still 
kids did what, you know, my father was saying that he did what kids do. He was swimming in the summer and ice skating in the winter. And he was a kid and wasn't really aware that there was this looming potential war. But very quickly, the North Korean troops just massed all along that border between North and South, all along that 38th parallel, and just staged this invasion by land, by air, from east to west. And of course, it was only three days before they made it to Seoul, the capital. And I did read in my my uncle's memoir, and unfortunately, he passed away, so I never got a chance to ask him the story about what happened that day. But he and his father jumped into a rented truck. They drove as fast. They were in Seoul at the time. The rest of my family was to the northeast in Chuncheon. So my grandfather and my uncle jumped into a truck, drove as fast as they could over the Han River. This is this big river that divides the city of Seoul. And not long after they crossed it, the bridge was blown up to stop the communist advance. So my family had a house in in Gangwon province. My grandfather had owned a chain of gas stations in that region. And so my grandmother, pregnant, although no one knew it at the time, and several of her children were there, and she made a split-second decision when she heard that the troops were closing in to flee on foot with a handful of small children, a couple of their household helpers, and it apparently eight months, they crossed the country, fleeing, bombing, trying to find places to stay, trying to find food to eat. And my father says that he just remembers, cannot forget the hunger, just that feeling of constant hunger because they were constantly on the run. And this is a wealthy family, and yet all the wealth in the world, or I should say all the wealth in Korea at the time, did very little to help in a situation of war. One thing that's jumped out at me, of course, what struck me was that he said that they couldn't communicate. So they couldn't communicate with his father. They didn't have communications at the time. So you had two branches of this immediate family, both fleeing the bombing and trying to find safety with no way to communicate to one another whether they were safe and where they even were. The family did have some properties in their ancestral homes farther south. So as much as they could, they would make their way to those ancestral homes. And that was where they eventually met up eight months later, completely bedraggled, apparently, and hungry, but for the most part, safe. In terms of the hunger, one of the most tragic stories for my family was that one of my uncles, who was my father's younger brother, was so hungry that he gorged himself on ginkgo nuts. And ginkgo nuts can be poisonous when eaten in large quantities. And so he did die poisoned by ginkgo nuts as a small boy. And that was a moment So of, desperate of, for food because of the war that he drove himself to eat whatever he could find and, and that ultimately killed him. Absolutely. So this is a story that my family members tell to talk about the extreme hunger during the war. And, you know, as you say, they were pushed. They were pushed down. They made their way down south. They eventually made it. The North Koreans pushed their way down the peninsula And had the Koreans cornered and the troops cornered, the U.S. led U.N. forces in this tiny little corner of this massive port city called Busan. And so the stories that my parents tell about having to be living as refugees in Busan, it's just, 
It's incredible. My mother to this day has a complete fear of rats. And she says it comes from that period where rats would fall out of every little crevice in these ramshackle sheds where all these families from Seoul, from all over the country were, were fleeing to. They basically had, the North Koreans had cornered them into this tiny little section of South Korea and the entire country was holding up there, those who could make it. And you know what's amazing? is that that neighborhood is still there in Busan. It's fascinating. It's been taken over by artists. But you see this hillside just covered with with sheds, really. And I do try to visit that village when I go to Busan, not only because it's so colorful, but also because it is a piece of my family history. It's a piece of almost every Korean family's history. And it does give you that sense of the precariousness of life during war. And you know, I think about this a lot right now, given what's happening in Ukraine. And I cannot, you know, tell you how much I thought about my own family in those early days in Ukraine, where families were caught off guard in very much the same way. And what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine, I just think we saw this happen in Korea as well, in different circumstances. But those, some of those scenes reminded me of what I heard from my own family, of what they went through, the uncertainty, the chaos during the Korean War as well. But not only that, torn allegiances and families torn apart. You know, there are reports of families in Russia that don't believe the reports of their family in Ukraine of the extent to which they're under attack. So this is tearing apart the fabric of family life. And it's increasing the levels of anonymity between these two countries, these two peoples that were once one. And is this the same that happens on the Korean peninsula in Korea? Is it at this point, as a result of such hardship, that you start to get this starkness of divisions between the North and the South that we see today? Is it in that moment that this bitterness is formed? I have to say, I have thought in watching the war in Ukraine, I have thought quite a bit about what the legacy would be. And as somebody whose family was so marked, like many Korean families, by the war, I wonder if it's going to be a generational conflict like it is for us, one that is going to have long-lasting wounds. So for the Koreans, absolutely, there were certainly ideological differences. But I think the most painful and most brutal rupture has been the physical separation of families. Families that, again, some of it was arbitrary. I grew up with people who, you know, they lived in this border town of Kaesong, for example, or my closest friends. Her father, his family lived in Kaesong. They're descended from the royalty in Kaesong. They're right on the border. So his mother sent his, her son to safety in Seoul. And then they closed the border, and he never saw his mother again. Grew up essentially an orphan on the South Korean side. Did what he could, did very well, became a, a cardiologist, moved to the United States, raised a family, became a U.S. citizen. And the most amazing thing about his story is that in 1991, he went back to North Korea as an American doctor and found his family. He was reunited with his family. And my friend as well uh, went back to visit her first cousins while I was there in North Korea. And it is kind of an amazing story in the sense that it brings to life just how raw and how divided these families can be 
And again, like I said, you the sense that you have when you're an ethnic Korean in North Korea that this could easily be me, that I could easily have ended up here. And I couldn't help but think many, many times, who would I have been? Is that person a cousin of mine that I just don't know about? But I do think that that division has been incredibly painful for the Koreans, politics aside. That's something they have no control over. That division was enforced upon them. And I think any of these families would say if they could, they would want to be reunited, politics aside, just to see those family members once again. Of course, that generation is now dying, right? So they're well into their 80s and 90s and probably very little chance that they will get to their hometowns or, or, or see their families again. So I think that that has been incredibly painful. There have been a series of reunions organized by the Red Cross over the years. They're very few and far between right now, given the tension between North Korea and the rest of the world, especially South Korea. Well, well, they're turned on and off depending on the political will of the moment, aren't they? Absolutely. But I think I do look at Ukraine and think this is the wounds are going to be so deep and it'll be generations that are affected by this conflict like we were in Korea. Well, sadly, like you say, this conflict does continue and recent missile tests show that it probably isn't going to come to an end any time soon. But thank you so much, Jean, for taking us through just a little bit of the history and giving us a Korean perspective on the Korean War and what it was like for civilians who had to flee that invasion. Please tell us, where can people learn more about the South Korean experience and also your own work? So I did write about my family's experience during the Korean War two years ago in an essay called Guns and Hunger, and that was published in the Wilson Quarterly, so you can find that online. I also talk a bit about my family's experience in my podcast for the BBC World Service. It's called The Lazarus Heist, and it's about North Korean cyber. But I do bring in some of this history so that people can understand the context behind all these missile launches and nuclear ambitions and where they're getting the money to finance it. Uh, so my website is jhleemedia.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as uh, News Gene. Perfect. Gene, thank you so much. And um, we'll get you back on the Warfare podcast very soon. In fact, we've got you scheduled in to talk about North Korea and their perspective of the history of the conflict. So everybody, stay tuned. Gene, thank you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.